New Life is a family. I've said this over the years. You can write things down or you can just listen today. I don't know what you need to do. But a family is, is different than a service or a place that you just go to. A family uh, isn't just a place that you go to. A family is something that you're a part of. And what I've told you throughout the years, if you've been with us for a while, is every family, good and bad, has a certain uh, molecular or spiritual DNA to it. And so if we got up here and had testimony time, your family would look different than my family, and your stories might look a little different than my stories, and sometimes there's commonalities, and sometimes it's different, but every family has a closely knitted DNA, and all families have certain qualities, certain things that make them tick for the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so what I want to do this morning is say, hey, this is a family, that's why it says welcome home, and this family has a certain DNA to it. And families don't change much. And so if you are new or if you're just checking new life out, just know this. Families don't change much. Can you relate to that? You want your family to change. You've been in counseling for your family to change. You have tried your hardest to push an agenda on your family. But have you come to realize a certain thing in your life that you really can't change other people and that families don't really change much? The same is true with church. You can try your hardest to change the family, but the culture doesn't seem to shift much. And so we've gone from a place over here in 2005 to something that looks on the surface outside of it a lot different, but really the DNA of the church has changed minimal. That's why I fell in love with this church. 17 years later, it represents the fact that I'm now getting really old. I've spent most of my adult life only knowing new life. And so I want to show you the DNA of the church. Turn your Bibles to the book of Luke. We're going to walk through a famous story that all of you have probably heard, Christian or non. It's the story of two sons. And what I want you to know about this is that both sons have one commonality, even though they look opposite. And the commonality that both of these sons possess, we're going to spend a lot of time with one son, a little time with the second son, But new life looks like one of the sons in this story, and you can guess as to which one that is, and that's on purpose, but both of these sons are sinners, even though they look incredibly different. Luke 15, verse 11. And he said, and that's Jesus, he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and underline things, underline this word, and there he squandered, underline that, his property, and then underline this next statement because it does represent new life. He squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pig ate, pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. I want to just break down this story. If you've never heard it or never digested it, here it is. The younger son does something unthinkable. In the culture that they were living in, you would get an inheritance, just like in our culture usually, right? You would get an inheritance, but it would be post-mortem. Dad had to die. And so what the son was saying to the dad was very simple. Give me 
what's mine, and that's in his own prideful, arrogant heart. Give me what's mine, and I want you to give that to me before you die as if, and this is what he's really saying, and this is why it's so disrespectful, as if you're already dead, and so all I want is your money, pops. I don't care if you live another day, I just want what's coming to me. And so he's basically wishing his dad dead, and he's saying in this mafia tone, you're dead to me, right? I can have a good time, I can do what I want, I just want your money. And this was so disrespectful that this idea could have had the son killed. Deuteronomy 21 would have had no tolerance for this type of son who was so disrespectful. And then he does what so many people do. He goes, he takes his lottery money, he goes and he just lives it up. We don't know exactly what he does with the money, but the economy turns. It's sounding familiar, isn't it, in the world that we're living in right now? The economy turns, the sports car leases up, he's got a nice place on the beach, he's buying some friends. All of a sudden, the money runs dry. He takes all of his Xbox games. He takes them to the pawn shop. We don't, you know, no one's laughing. You guys aren't even following me. You're like, I've heard this speech before. I'm just trying to make it interesting. Follow me. He takes all of these things. He runs out of money. And then, trust me, this guy looks like so many people that have flowed through this place over the last several years. And then he hits such a rock bottom. This is where we're just at in our sermon series. That the Bible says that he goes to this spot where he is eating and working for, he's indentured to, he's a slave in essence, uh, a farmer that has a field, and he goes to this low point as a Jewish young man of feeding pigs. And as if the narrative doesn't stop there, it gets so dark that he doesn't just feed the pigs, he longs for the food that the pigs eat. And so this is rock bottom for him, and he has this epiphany when he sees the pigs eating. He says, man, I just wish I was living this rock star life, and now it's all run dry. I just wish I could even eat what the pigs eat. And so the light bulb is going off in his mind, and he goes from a place where he now wants to go back to the father of using the father, and then he has this other light bulb moment. He says, maybe if I just go back to the father, I don't have to have the inheritance. I don't have to have the status Maybe, just maybe, I can go back to the Father and just be one of his servants because it would be a lot better than this pig pen that I'm currently living in. And so he goes from a place of using to a place of serving the Father, and then the Father responds, and this is where the plot thickens. This is what gives us a mindset for ministry at New Life. Read with me the Father's response, verse 20. And he arose and he came to his Father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And take the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and let us celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. This this is our mantra. This is why we exist. We want to see this kid who thought he had it all figured out, whose now life is in shambles. We want to see him restored by the father. My son who was dead is alive again. He was lost, and now he's what? 
Are you awake? He was lost and now he's found. And then they began to celebrate. This is the gospel on display. This is the reason that new life exists. Why does the father see him from a long way off? Can you get a mental picture of what this would have looked like? He sees him from a long way off because since the time the boy left who disrespected, disrespected the father, the father's heart has been longing for this son. He's been looking out the window of his house and just waiting. Right? The, the theological structure of this needs to be also mentioned that the father doesn't go chasing the son. The, the son rebels, but the father The father waits for the son to have this repentant heart, and then when the son has the repentant heart, the father engages him, and the father actually then runs to him, but he starts with watching and waiting. And so we have people in our own lives, right? They go out and they rebel, and we keep tabs on them, but we know this, that only they can make the change. Only the father can engage them at a heart level. And then when they're ready to make that change, what does the church do? What does New Life do? We're waiting. We're waiting for the prodigal to return home so that they can be in right relationship with God the Father. He was eager and he was redemptive. And in fact, what we hear about in this text is after the son then decides to come home, the father sees him from a long way off. The father does something unthinkable in Jewish culture. The father runs to the son and he would have had a robe and it would have been long and it would have been messy. And so to hike up the robe, to hike up the garments and run to the son would have been absolutely abandoning all dignity from the father. Do you get a mental picture of what this would look like? He's emotional, he's pulling up his robe, he's waiting for his son, he's abandoning his dignity, and then he keeps going, and it says that he engages the son and he kisses his son, and in the Greek it tells us, and the understanding of what this means, that it's not just a simple kiss, look at me, he keeps kissing the son. He keeps kissing the son because he loves this kid. You get this picture. It's one of the most beautiful pictures in all of the gospel accounts of what God the Father's heart is like for us who rebel against him. If you have kids, maybe it has a special significance to you. If you have teenagers, you know what this actually would feel like because teenagers have one commonality. They like to be indifferent And sometimes, don't you feel, is anyone raising a teenager? Don't you feel like all they really want is the inheritance now? The gas tank filled now? And they run far off. I'm not diving into my personal life because my kids are perfect. But but they run far off, don't they? And it's not necessarily with their sin. It's just with their affection. One of the things my wife has been doing is because our boys are getting old, my oldest will be 17 real quick, his birthday perfectly correlates with the existence of new life. But one of the things that she's been doing is she has been going up to him particularly because he thinks he's so cool now. He'll be at the second service. And she snuggles up to him on the couch in a very awkward-like manner, and she starts hugging him and kissing him, and it's almost like a dog with his head out the window. He's just like this, right? (laughs) I would imagine that that's what it looks like. When the father engages the son, and he doesn't just kiss him, he keeps kissing him. It's this idea of healthy masculinity. Dads, if we want to raise boys who are going to be good fathers and husbands and show affection to their kids, and this is a modeled behavior, and it's modeled from God himself, he gives them a ring. 
This was a business transaction. This was bringing him back into the fold. When you would seal a business deal, agriculture or alike, you would have a signature ring that you would finalize the transaction with. And so he's giving him, in essence, a place at the table. He's giving him shoes. The fact that he didn't have shoes was a clear sign that when he was living with the pigs, he was a slave. So all of this is showing that his dignity is being restored. Then in walks the older son who's having a pity party. Look at how the story concludes. But the older son, verse 28 now, but the older son, we skipped a few things, he was angry and he refused to go in. And his father came out and he entreated him. But he answered his father. He said, look, many years I have served you. How many, just a show of hands, let's stop for a second. I know you, how, how many know the story? How many of you have sympathy for the older brother? Just be honest. How many of you, I'm not happy with that result. How many of you, be honest, it's Aberdeen. How many of you have sympathy for the hardworking older son, follow the rules story in this passage? How many of you could, thank you, right? Religious people, they don't always tell the truth at first. Here we go. Verse 28 again, but he was angry and refused to go in. Aggressive or passive aggressive? Passive aggressive. His father came out and entreated him. Can you imagine what this would have looked like? I didn't plan on going this far with it, but can you imagine just the, the look away? Look at me and I'll look away. He's just like, what's wrong? Nothing. Right? Verse 29, but he answered his father, many years I've served you. Hear his religious heart. And I've never disobeyed. First of all, he's not perfect. He's not Jesus, so he just lied. I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you, he's seething. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son, it's not my brother, right? Look at me. It's not my brother. It's this son. When this son of yours, not mine, came who has devoured your property with prostitutes. We didn't know that part. With prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And basically what he's saying, I love that we get that little insight into prostitutes. Whatever was going on was a bad, bad deal. He probably had to move out of Aberdeen to go live that lifestyle and then come back and act like everything's cool again. But when your son does this, this is what he is saying that all of us have said when we felt slighted in our passive-aggressive, hard-working, Midwestern culture. He's saying this, and this is how it translates in the Greek, so you need to hear me because I'm going to break this down on a theological level. This is the Greek. Look at me. Are you freaking kidding me? That's what he's saying in the pig Latin or the Greek. I mean, he is ticked off. He says, you think I'm going into that house? You think I'm going to embrace that brother? You think I'm going to go shine his new shoes and his ring and his robe? If you think in any way that I am going to be a part of anything like that, you have lost your stinking mind. All I've done is serve you and all you've done is disrespect me. At the heart of man is pride, is it not? How, how dare you? How dare you? I have worked my butt off and you never threw me a party. This guy sleeps with prostitutes and you throw out the fatted calf. 
And then it says this, and he said to him, son, you're always with me. All that's mine is yours. It was a fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and now he is found. Why is the older brother so mad at the younger brother? I can't help but go the counselor route. I just cannot help it. He was jealous. And I'm sure he was mad that he got things that he didn't deserve. But, but here, here's where I think is really stirring his affections in a negative way. I think he's, da- he's mad at his dad because his dad forgives his brother. His dad is bonded to his brother and he wants that type of relationship probably with his dad. And so he is absolutely bitter. And here's what I want you to see. We all look like, this is the vision for new life. This is why we do what we do. I think this is why God has honored this movement. But I wanna start off with this idea, and I've told you this before. We all look like a brother. We all look like the two brothers in the story. And so the question is not, do we look like a brother? The only question to answer is, which brother do we look like? On an individual level, on a church circle level, every church identifies with one of these two brothers. It's not a question of if, it's just a question of which one. So understand that because the brothers represent something. The brothers represent sin. Every Christian looks like one of the two brothers. You got saved out of a little brother story or a big brother story. And so know that out of the gate. The question is not if, but which one. And so what I want you to hear is this. The younger brother's sin is rebellion. The older brother's sin is religion. And when Christ grabbed your heart and changed it, he either saved you out of primary context of rebellion, and we're gonna break that down for a minute and then we're gonna close, or religion, rule follower, I thought I could work my way to God and then I realized when Christ woke up my heart that I'm just the older brother in this story. Here here are the distinguishing differences according to a guy named Matt Chandler. Rebellion's sin is visible and you can write these things down. It's gonna kind of go here on the screen. Religious sin is invisible. How do you know which brother you are? Well, rebellious sin doesn't care who sees it. It's in your face. It's obvious. It doesn't hide the hangover. It's done all sorts of things that it might not be proud of, but it doesn't have that countenance to it where it's going to hide those things about itself. Rebellious sin makes promises. You guys know anyone that's rebellious? Kind of getting, this is one of those sermons where everyone puts someone in their mind, don't they? They're like, yeah, that's my crazy uncle, okay? Rebellious sin makes promises, and what else does rebellious sin do? Breaks promises. Rebellious sin gets really emotional and tends to be led by its emotions and has all of these plans, especially when it's not sober, to change and to call you at 2 a.m., right? And to cry it out. And then the next day, you're so frustrated because 10 years, it's still been going on. They don't even remember what they told you when they were hammered. Rebellious sin knows that they're coming to church and they still smell like the night before But for some reason, God's allowed them to be in the service and they're getting saved out of that rebellious state. Religious sin is invisible. It's hard to identify because it does one thing well. And Christianity has been notorious for this. It follows the big rules well. It's things like 
seen sexual immorality, drug use, alcohol use, you know, holding a job, working hard. Rebellion uses people. Number two, right there, that'll be on the screen too. Rebellion uses people. Religion judges people. Rebellion loves to steal money from the sock drawer. Rebellion is rarely honest. Rebellion is incredibly manipulative. Religion looks at those detestable qualities and thanks God that they're not as bad as that person. Rebellion uses people. Religion judges people. Rebellion is usually lazy. This is why in Aberdeen we don't like them. Religion looks hardworking. Rebellion tends to break alarm clocks, lose jobs, shirk responsibility, owe people money. Rebellion makes promises it rarely keeps. Religion works hard and cares a great deal about what other people think of them. And religion loves checklists. Tell me, pastor, four or five things to do so that I can be somebody that is a position of prominence in this church and in the community. Here's the last one. Rebellion is unrighteous. Religion is self-righteous. And so if this is your background and rebellion is still your excuse, well, I'm just the younger brother in the story. No, if you've been saved, no longer applies. Rebellion is unrighteous. The Bible speaks of God's holiness more than any other quality in Scripture, and so we need to take that to heart if that's our background. Religion is self-righteous, and the problem with that is Jesus cannot stand self-righteous hearts. He speaks more harshly to people that are self-righteous and religious leaders of the day than he does to any other group. Here's the second thing that I want you to hear. The only good person in the story, the only hero of the story, is not the younger brother and is not the older brother. Who's the hero of the story? The father. The father's amazing. The father does what he's supposed to do. The father loves from a position of power, the way that he's supposed to love. And so when Chuck gets up here this morning and says new life's all about Jesus and, new, and Jesus is a big deal and Jesus is the hero of our narrative, this is why. Right? There's, a, there's a third son to this narrative and he's the perfect son and his father is perfect. And so the father pours out grace instead of judgment. The father's a big deal. Jesus is a big deal. The father is saving people by grace, because of his son's blood, and then rising them to new life, not because of what they've done. They were rebellious, or they were self-righteous, but because he's good, and he's holy, and he's loving, and so it's not about us. This entire movement has nothing to do with us and everything to do with the Father. So here's the thing that I think makes new life different than a lot of things. This is what I want you to see and understand about new life. This is it. Write it down. This is new life. Is there suspense? Here it is. Can we put it on the screen? New life is a younger brother church in an older brother community. This is through prayer over the years as your leader, your identifiable vision caster, this is the difference maker. This recipe is not for sale. It's free to anyone who wants it and anyone who wants to go start another church in town. But if I was to pick one thing 
that has been a differential or a difference maker in Aberdeen where we have seen the gospel take off, it is that we have owned this mentality. And the reason I bring this up is, is multifaceted. One of the reasons I bring it up is it's an excuse for you to leave if it bugs you. If you hear about that and you have an affection for the older brother who feel like you know, uh, he's really getting a raw deal, just know there are a lot of places you can go that will agree with you. This is the difference maker. The younger brother is the brother that we pursue. We have a heart for both. We have a heart for people that aren't saved, but we're chasing the younger brother, that person who's been through stuff, and that's why like, things like this last sermon series went so well. When you're talking about trauma, when you're talking about addiction, when you're talking about recovery, when you're talking about transformation, who are you targeting? You're targeting the guy that just chased the prostitute that's now coming back home shoeless. And so it's on purpose. New life is chasing the younger brother. There's a certain DNA to how we operate. We want to engage people right out of the pig pen. We want to err on the side of grace. We're going to believe that details will never be as important as relationships. We understand when we're working with the younger brother, and this is things that I've said throughout the years, that hurt people do what? Hurt people. It's on the screen. Just read it. And so we're not going to be shocked by it. We're not going to be dismayed by, by people disappointing because that's just what people do when they're broken. And here's another philosophical shift that I think that you won't find everywhere. There's a reason that we're so blunt. The reason that we're so blunt is younger brothers only respond to blunt reactions. You don't have to beat around the bush with someone who still smells like a hangover. They just want the truth. You don't have to kind of, you know, beat too careful about how you say things. You just need to be clear. And so we want to tell the truth at all costs, that Jesus is the way, that Jesus is the only way, that morality is not defined by what we want it to be. Morality is defined by what God says it is. That there's a right and there's a wrong. And we're going to love you when you're doing things that are wrong, but we're going to love you enough to tell you what's right. To tell you that the gospel is exclusive, that the Bible's inerrant. That sexuality is something that God designs for your life. And so when you're going out and doing all these things outside of the will of God, you're destroying your own life and creating trauma that doesn't need to exist. And God is calling you back to himself because he's a good father. We want to tell the truth at all costs. And we understand this, that change happens at a heart level and it happens in God's timing. We're going to have the kids come up here and sing in just a second. They're already lined up, which is a natural motive for me to shut my mouth. Nothing has changed. Look at me. Nothing has changed. 17 years in, we just want to reach people that need Jesus. Take your book home that we gave you under your seat. Celebrate the stats. But remember this. The, stat, the stats just represent the mission and vision of disciple making. That people are broken. That people still need Jesus. That we're just scratching the surface. And that God has given this position of influence in this community to see the gospel go forward. And it's not just here, it's here in Peru. And we have these footprints in Ukraine and Rock Creek and downtown. Mike is preaching the same message right now because we wanna see the gospel go forward. And our DNA, we go after everyone who's not saved, but our passion is for those people that are broken and it's not gonna change. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for this church. 
We thank you for the hope that we have in you and you alone. And so I would, I would ask that you would, you've done so much, but this would only be the surface, that you'd only be scratching the surface about what you're going to do in our church. How many people are going to respond to the gospel in 2022? That lives will be changed, that needs will be met, and that hearts will be hungry for your work. I pray that we keep funding the mission and vision and we would see lives changed one heart at a time. And I pray these things in your precious and holy name. And everybody said, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you, and we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your New Life family. For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.